0: The opening front pages uh, Arabian Nights involves 16,000 protesters. Yemen's springtime brings change for Middle East. And U of G set up a brain drain. Students invade in thousands. Coming up on the program today, a report from our North Pole correspondent who has recently been learning to ski across the ocean floor. Apparently, it's just like riding a bike and there will be interviews with both fish and seals about the bizarre trend. Now let's hear from those involved in these groundbreaking events.
1: News bang! Cutting through the fog of deception with a machete of factuality. 2011
0: The Yemeni Revolution Part of the Arab spring-cleaning season of 2011 saw 16,000 disgruntled Yemenis demanding their government be washed and ironed. Fed up with unemployment, economic conditions resembling a used Kleenex, and corruption-like stains on Saleh's kaftan, they took to the streets of Sana'a, or Amman, as it's known after three sherries.
2: The revolution started in neighbouring Tunisia, where protesters deposed President Ben Ali Baba over unpaid parking fines. Emboldened by their success, other Arab nations joined in. Egyptians rocked up at Tahrir Square to throw out Hosni Mubarak for his backwards baseball cap and generally acting like a knob. Meanwhile, in Yemen, the calls for President Ali Abdullah Saleh to resign grew louder than an episode of Sherlock with subtitles
0: on. The world watches on with baited baklava as events unfold faster than a post-lunch siesta. 1785. A three-way spat has broken out between the University of Georgia, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the College of William and Mary over who's got the oldest pair in America. The universities are squabbling over which one is the oldest public university in the United States.
2: Armteat. The University of Georgia claims it was founded in 1785 AD, when a group of drunk academics stumbled upon some parchment on their way home from a tavern. They named it Georgia, after one of their wives, Georgina, while they were in that sort of mood.
0: Meanwhile, UNC Chapel Hill boasts its founding date as 1784 BC during a bear fight at Alexander the Great's housewarming party but then there's William and Mary who claim to be older than both combined but admit to being private for 200 years until finally succumbing to state aid in 1906.
2: Witnesses say things turned ugly when UGA supporters started lobbing quills at UNC fans who retaliated with used scrolls. Police eventually dispersed them with a chant down memory lane. Na 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 hey hey hey, you all had your funding.
1: 1820
0: 1820 and the world as we know it was about to get a whole lot colder. A motley crew of Russian misfits led by fake tan Bellingawful and Mikhail Laserass set sail on an expedition to prove what everyone already knew, that if you go far enough south, it gets bloody chilly. With a crew of 119 other equally hardy souls, they braved the treacherous seas in search of something icy cold and white.
2: After months at sea, scurvy rife and mutiny imminent, they spotted land. Captain Bellinghausen cried out, My God, man, it's full of penguins! Lazarev added, and snow. And so it was that Antarctica was discovered, a frozen tundra so hostile not even the most dedicated Englishman would want to play cricket there. The locals, friendly but unused to visitors, waddled up with flippers, outstretched offering frozen fish cake in welcome.
0: And so began our fascination with this barren continent fifth-largest yet somehow still mostly overlooked at parties. Home to more emperor penguins than you can shake a krill at, Antarctica now plays host to scientists studying everything from climate change, ironic, to how long humans can last without Netflix before going insane.
1: News bang! The truth uncensored, uncut and unapologetic.
0: And now Shakanaka Giles brings us a weather forecast that's about as reliable as the royal family's Christmas card list. Here he is with today's weather lump.
3: Tomorrow, in the heart of the southeast, expect a gentle drizzle. It's as if the sky is shedding tears for all those resolutions already broken. ...or... And over in the Midlands, a chilly day awaits. So, wrap-up warm. The cold might be enough to freeze the smile off a, a Cheshire cat. In the north of England and Scotland, things will be frosty. It's like stepping into a freezer full of bagpipes and haggis. A quick glance at Wales reveals a mix of sunshine and showers, a bit like a Welsh cake, sweet and crumbly, with a few unexpected surprises. Lastly, in Northern Ireland, it'll be bright but breezy. The wind will be strong enough to blow away any lingering January blues. In summary then, weeping skies, chilly Midlands, frosty North, crumbly Wales and breezy Ireland. And that's all the weather.
1: 2011
0: The winds of change swept through the Arab world in 2011 with the Yemeni revolution becoming an integral part of the Arab Spring. The spark was ignited by 16,000 protesters demanding reforms in Sana'a, Yemen's capital and largest city. This uprising followed the Tunisian revolution and coincided with the Egyptian revolution and other Arab Spring protests. Initially driven by unemployment, economic conditions and corruption, The protests soon escalated to calls for President Ali Abdullah Saleh's resignation. As the government seat moved to Arden in 2015, our correspondent Brian Bastable is there to provide a first-hand account of this historical moment.
4: The stench of the burning dead lingers in the air as I stagger through a shattered landscape. Beneath me rats feed on human flesh. Above, vultures and other carrion birds circle in anticipation of more feasting. This is not the sight that greets you on your average Sunday morning, but then this is not your average Sunday morning. This city once throbbed with life and was full of the sounds of joyful celebration, yet now it lies ravaged by conflict between warring factions determined to destroy everything they once loved and held dear for no apparent reason at all except to hear their own screams echoing off buildings that still stand defiantly against this tide of hate and destruction. My boots crunch upon a carpet of broken glass from windows smashed long ago by those who sought refuge inside these doomed structures as rocket fire thundered down from the sky like thunderous fists seeking out each individual heartbeat within these once proud homes, now nothing more than twisted skeletons silhouetted against an angry red dawn. I press myself hard against what remains of a wall knowing full well that any second could be my last before another volley tears through my body leaving only bloodied chunks behind for scavengers to feast upon without prejudice or mercy. After all, we are all merely food here in this hellish nightmare where love has been replaced by fear and compassion replaced by cruelty in a macabre dance marathon fueled solely by testosterone-charged adrenaline surges coursing through veins thickened with hatred born out of unchecked power. Lust gone madly awry amidst cries for help drowned out beneath deafening roars punctuated only occasionally by moments stolen straight from some surrealist painting, come disturbingly alive before our very eyes. Brian Bastable reporting live for Newsbang somewhere deep within what used to be Sanier.
1: 2010.
0: The world of politics is never short of intrigue and the Central American nation of Honduras has been no exception. The year 2010 marked a pivotal moment in the country's history as Porfirio Lobo Sosa assumed the presidency, thus concluding a constitutional crisis that had begun in 2009. Manuel Zelaya, the deposed president, had sought to orchestrate a referendum for crafting a new constitution, only to be ousted by the Honduran army. This military intervention represented the first coup d'etat in Honduras since 1978. And now to discuss this further with me is our esteemed political correspondent, Hardiman Pesto. I'm here in the Presidential Palace in Tegucigalpa with the new leader, Porfirio Lobo Sosa. Mr. President, what will be your first actions in office? Well, Pesto, first I will ensure uh, we have a steady supply of bananas and coffee for export. Then I will change the constitution to make myself president for life. After that, I will make my horse Minister of Agriculture. An interesting agenda there from President Lobo. Back to you in the studio, Martin. Wait a minute, Pesto. Are you telling me this man just carried out an illegal coup against a democratically elected leader and he's now going to rule Honduras like a Banana Republic dictator? Ah, uh, I don't think we can make allegations about the uh, constitutional legitimacy of President Lobo's rise to power. Why the hell not? He just admitted he's shredding the Constitution and appointing his horse to the Cabinet. Ask him if he's going to hold free and fair elections. Mr. President, will you hold free and fair elections soon? Elections? Why would I do that when I just made myself president for life? Do you want to be Minister of Tourism? Oh, I'd love to, Martin, but I don't have the qualifications. Back to you. Get back there, pesto. The fate of Honduran democracy is at stake. Are you just going to let this tyrant turn the country into his own personal plantation? Absolutely not. Mr. President, will you uphold civil liberties and the rule of law? Liberties. The only liberty here is for my horse to graze wherever he wants. Now bow down before El Presidente. I better not, Martin. I'm wearing my best suit. Back to you. Pesto, you spineless amoeba. He's trampling over human rights. Say something. Ask him about the disappeared. Pesto. Pesto. Is he making you disappear too? Pesto. I'm still here, Martin. Just admiring the fruit bowl on President Lobo's desk. Back to you. Get the hell out of there, pesto, and stay out of Honduras. You're a disgrace to journalism. Adiós el presidente, hasta banana, back to you, Martin. 2003 In a move that could only be described as culturally significant, the United States National Recording Registry has unveiled its latest list of sonic gems. Established in the year 2000 by the National Recording Preservation Act, This Library of Congress-maintained roster aims to safeguard the nation's auditory heritage. With over 173 million items in its collection, the Library of Congress stands tall as America's oldest federal cultural institution and one of the world's largest libraries. And to discuss this momentous occasion with me is our correspondent, Melody Wintergreen.
5: In the hallowed halls of the Library of Congress, where the whispers of history echo through corridors lined with the wisdom of ages, a new chapter unfolds in America's auditory anthology. The National Recording Registry, a treasure trove of tunes and talks, is about to swell with the latest batch of oral artifacts deemed worthy of preservation for perpetuity. The air is electric with anticipation as cultural connoisseurs and sonic savants gather to witness which sounds will be enshrined in this acoustic arc. Among the hopefuls, a bootleg recording of a bluesman's barroom lament, a presidential speech that once stirred a nation's soul, and the crackling first broadcast that leapt from a radio tower and into the annals of auditory awe. Each recording, a thread in the tapestry of American culture, awaits its fate. As the list unfurls like a red carpet for reverberations, each selected soundbite is more than mere noise. It's a heartbeat of history, now immortalized. And so as these sounds slip into their rightful place in the registry, they remind us that every pop, hiss, and harmony holds a story, a sonic snapshot of the American spirit. This is Melody Wintergreen amidst the echoes of eternity at the Library of Congress.
1: News bang, taking the pulse of truth one beat at a time.
0: And now, a fascinating journey through the annals of environmental history with Penelope Windchime. Today, she recounts the Brisbane flood of 1974, an event that embodied both Earth's might and whimsy.
6: Ah, the year was 1974 a year etched in the annals of time when Mother Nature, in her infinite jest, decided to let the Brisbane River dance beyond its banks. The river, that serpentine ribbon of life which slithers through Queensland's verdant bosom, swelled with pride and overflowed like an overzealous teapot. The city of Brisbane, that sparkling jewel in Australia's coastal crown with its 2.6 million souls, found itself taking an unexpected bath. The waters rose with the grace of a clumsy ballerina, twirling through streets and alleyways, waltzing into homes uninvited. Surrounding areas raised their eyebrows as their normally placid neighbour turned into a frothy beast, spilling secrets into Moreton Bay. And as the river receded, leaving behind a soggy mess of memories and mud pies, Brisbaneites looked upon their drenched domain and pondered. Was it a flood? or just Earth's way of saying it needed to cool off. We may never know, but one thing is certain. When rivers decide to explore urban living, they do so with a splash. I'm Penelope Winchime, reminding you that even when nature floods your parade, there's always a rainbow waiting in the wings.
1: 2011
0: Presenting the latest scientific marvel that has the world buzzing, it's our very own Calamity Prenderville. Reminding us that British innovation is akin to a sizzling white dwarf star, scorching hot and absolutely enchanting.
7: Today, let's journey back to 2011, when British innovation was reaching for the stars. Or rather, the little bear constellation, Ursa Minor, home to H1504, plus 65 a white dwarf star with a surface temperature of 200,000 K. That's as hot as a sauna in hell. H 150465 is a mystery wrapped in an enigma. It's like the marmite of stars. You either love it or hate it. Its atmosphere is mostly carbon and oxygen, with a dash of neon for good measure. Imagine sipping a cup of PG Tips with extra oxygen and neon. Yum.
8: Now, why is this star so important? Well, it's thought to be the core of a post-asymptotic giant branch star. Sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel, doesn't it? But fear not, dear listener, this isn't the work of alien technology. No, sir. This is pure British innovation at its finest. White dwarfs are dense stellar core remnants composed of electron-degenerate matter. Think of them as the coronation street of stars, dense, gritty and full of drama. The nearest known white dwarf is Sirius B, but H1504 plus 65 is the real star of the show.
7: So there you have it. British innovation reaching for the stars in 2011. Who knows what we'll come up with next? Perhaps a Cadbury creme egg made entirely of stardust or a BBC micro that can travel at light speed. The future is bright, or should I say white. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Mm -hmm.
1: Newsbang. Unleashing the dogs of factuality. 1785.
0: In a blast from the past, we're whisked back to 1785 when the University of Georgia, one of America's oldest public universities, was founded. This flagship institution of the university system of Georgia has been embroiled in a centuries-long debate with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the College of William and Mary over who holds the esteemed title of America's oldest public university. But here's where it gets interesting. While William and Mary stakes its claim, it's worth noting that this institution was a private entity for over two centuries, before finally joining the public ranks in 1906. And now, to unravel this tangled web of academia and history, we turn to our reporter Smithsonia Moss,
6: Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us.
9: Waho, culture vultures! It's Smithsonian Moss, coming at you live and uncensored, like a streaker at a football game. Let's dive into the collegiate mosh pit of history, shall we? The year is 1785. And the University of Georgia is strutting its stuff like it's the head cheerleader of public universities. So, here's the tea. Spilled all over your history textbooks. UGA claims it's the OG of public higher education in the U.S. of A. But hold up, wait a minute. Let's put some side-eye in it. UNC Chapel Hill and the College of William and Mary are throwing some serious shade, each claiming they are the true ancient brain boxes. It's like a real housewives reunion but with more diplomas and less Botox. Now, William and Mary, bless their hearts, they were playing in the private league for over two centuries before they decided to slum it with the public school crowd in 1906. Talk about a glow-up, but UGA, honey, she's been public since the powdered wigs were in fashion, serving land-grant realness and research drama. And let's not forget UNC Chapel Hill, strutting into the history catwalk like Excuse me, darlings, but we were the first to actually teach the children. Oh, the pettiness. It's delicious. It's like watching Mozart and Salieri slap fight over a harpsichord. So, who's the real trailblazer in the public university pageant? It's a historical hissy fit. But one thing's for sure. These academic ancestors were serving knowledge realness before it was cool, paving the cobblestone streets for frat parties and existential crises over term papers. And that's the word from the campus quad, folks. Whether you're a bulldog, a Tar Heel, or a whatever William and Mary are, raise your red cups to the oldies but goodies of public education. This is Smithsonian Moss, reminding you that history is just high school with more wigs and less Snapchat.
1: News bang, unraveling the tangled web of deceit one fact at a time. The Deci Cidel 1343. Pope Clement VI issued a papal bull in 1343, granting remission
0: of sins to those who died of the Black Death. Unigenitus the decree justified the power of the Pope and indulgences. Quite what that means for today's Catholics remains to be seen. For more on this, we turn to our resident religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance.
8: Good evening, ladies and gents. Your favourite man of the cloth is back with more tales of faith and folly. Now, I must say, this papal bull business has always struck me as a load of... Well, bull. No offence to his holiness, of course. I'm sure Pope Clement had the best intentions granting indulgences to plague victims back in 1343, but really, printing up a fancy Latin certificate to escape purgatory? Seems like the medieval equivalent of those get-out-of-jail-free cards in Monopoly. Reminds me of a parishioner we once had, a Mrs Hortense Twig Figginbottom. Eccentric old dear, built like a barrel of brandy and just as tipsy most days. She was convinced she could buy her way into heaven by funding the new church roof. I'll donate every last farthing if you'll promise me a first-class ticket to the pearly gates. She'd wheeze at Father Ignatius O'Flaherty, lovely man, terrible with names, kept calling me Father Christmas at confession. (laughs) Well... Father O'Flahert finally had enough of Hortense's pesky bribery. He printed up an official-looking document on parchment, made up some Latin mumbo-jumbo, signed it Pope John Paul George Ringo, and presented it to her with great ceremony after Mass one Sunday. (laughs) She nearly fainted with joy as he announced, By the power vested in me by the Holy See, I hereby grant you plenary indulgence upon your earthly demise. This indulgence absolves you of all need for penance in purgatory. Hortense clutched that bogus papal bull to her bosom and cackled with glee. <laughs> of course, the joke was on Father O'Flahert in the end. Hortense left every last cent of her fortune to the Catholic Church in care of Pope John Paul George Ringo when she finally kicked the habit. Took ages to get that mess straightened out with the actual Vatican, let me tell you. Just goes to show clerical deceit. No matter how well meaning, can always backfire. (laughs) Best leave the indulgences and eternal rewards to the Almighty Himself. He sees through all our mortal mischief anyway. Right, that's all for tonight, folks. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord, whoever you might think He is.
0: So it's time for our last look at tomorrow's front pages. The Times goes with Ali ends Rashidun party time. There's a menu there of party food. The Express opts for Despite Heroics, General UFA wrongly executed. The Independent lead with Pride and Prejudice says no to wrong. And finally, The Daily Mirror goes with Ali has pride but no money for food. There's a montage there of hungry-looking actors. And that is the end of tonight's news show. On the day it was revealed that British Prime Minister John Major was receiving hate mail addressed to Mrs Kettle and Pigs. Now please close down all your cooking utensils and await further instructions.
1: Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.